0: Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. As always, links to items we discuss can be found on the episode page at JimRuttShow.com. Now, my voice isn't as sweet and dulcet as usual today. I'm on the backside of a cold, or maybe it's COVID, who the fuck knows. So if I sound a little hoarse, I am. And, of course, it's time for our usual shameless promotion. Please consider giving us a five-star rating on your podcast app today when you're done listening. As I regularly remind my listeners, it's a fact of the podcast ecosystem that ratings help drive visibility on the apps, which help us build our audience, which lets us continue to get the same great quality of guests we've been having. So hit us with a five-star rating, and if you have the time, a review is even better. Thanks. Our guest today is Harvey Reed. Harvey is a songwriter, multi instrumentalist, writer, and music educator. Harvey has honed his craft since the 1970s at something on the order of 6,000 live appearances at clubs, festivals, cafes, schools, and concert halls across the nations. He has won a bunch of awards and contests, including the 1981 National Fingerstyle Guitar Champion. He's a pretty damn serious musician. He's been called a giant of the steel strings and one of the true treasures of American acoustic music. And he's considered to be one of the modern masters and innovators of the acoustic guitar, auto harp, and six string banjo. He's released 32 albums on the Woodpecker record label, and by my count, has published more than 30 books on various aspects of music and music education. Welcome, Harv.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: That'll be great. It's got a good personal connection, too. Harvey and I go way back. We met in Mrs. McElwain's third grade elementary school class at Langley Elementary and we remained friends ever since. So it's really good to reconnect.
1: And they seated us alphabetically by last name back then. And I think you might have been sitting behind me for much of that year.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'd also just like to call out to Harvey's mother, Betty Reed. I hope will be listening to this episode, I spent a lot of time at the Reed House as a kid, and in retrospect, she was a wonderful influence on all of us. She was one of those rare adults who seemed to actually remember what it was like to be a kid and to be able to communicate and interact with us and take us seriously while not relinquishing the necessary role of mentoring, teaching, and when needed, correcting. Like my own mother, Mary Ann, Betty was a truly exemplary adult in the eyes of us kids. So, hi, Betty. Today, we're going to talk mostly about Harve's most recent book, The Troubadour Chronicles, a history, a celebration, and a manifesto. Though, as usual, we'll pursue ideas wherever they take us. So, before we jump into the book, why not start with a brief history of your life as a musician?
1: It's been a pretty gradual descent into the abyss. I'll confess, I had music wasn't a part of my life when I was young. Uh, and somehow I stumbled on a recreational guitar situation when I was about 14 and was somehow hypnotized, and I just could not stop noodling on the guitar, and it eventually ate me alive, and I've uh, basically never done anything else in my life. I've never really had a job, although, of course, we know that's a cliche, but um, I've been populating what I like to Referred to as the world of unpop music, after Michael Jackson died, I kind of anointed myself the unking of unpop, and uh, I've I've been content and sort of doomed by the my my nature to live in the world of sort of the under the radar independent music world where we're not allied with multinational music corporations. That's a whole book and a whole series of podcasts all by itself is what it's like to be an independent, truly independent musician. And luckily, I, I grew up there in Maryland, which was unknown to me or you probably at the time. It was a real hotbed of uh, bluegrass, and I was fascinated, and I, I I got the bluegrass bug really big in my teens there and at a certain point decided to... Uh, not do that anymore and just become me. And I moved to northern New England in the late 70s to work what I like to call the blue collar circuit of small gigs in small towns. And, you know, if you're, uh, if you're in a, a band, you have multiple people and you have to, if you're going to work many nights a week, you're going to have to live in a populated area. But if you work as a solo person, you can play Tuesday night and Wednesday night and Thursday night off night things. And up here where the towns are really close together and people are very provincial, you can play a a town 10 miles away and people want to, you know, they'll wait for you to come back to their town. And people who grew up in Utah where it's 100 miles to the next town had to do 100 times as much driving to um, drive around to their little gigs so I, uh, I played five to six nights a week for many, many, many years, uh, playing every kind of gig was imaginable or available. And gradually uh, started making recordings and I happened to sort of emerge right at the time when acoustic music was falling apart and the legends of my life, like John Prine and Bonnie Raitt were being dropped. Even Paul Simon, I think, lost his record contract. So there wasn't any real hope of a newcomer like me getting some kind of a major label record deal. So I learned how to do it below the radar and uh, have been eking out an existence uh, ever since. It's been quite a ride.
0: Yeah, you were one of the first musicians to actually start their own record company, as I understand.
1: Some people have credited me with making the very first uh, indie CD. I I was a very early adopter. Of that. And I may have even made the first desktop published book in uh, 1980, but I haven't done anything cutting edge technological in quite some time, but I accidentally was cutting edge there. I always thought I was born 20 years too late, but uh, the one wave that I really caught right was the wave of being able to own your own life's work and not uh, be ripped off by your record company, kind of a thing. And so I've been a, a proud. Carrier of the flag of the indie musician ever since 1981, really. So that's a pretty long time.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, my wife and I have followed your music from time to time. We've caught a couple of your shows, and you know, we're we're also fans of what you might call Americana or roots music. Though I think our interests tend to go more towards the Texas singer songwriter and some of the newer alt-country guys like Chris Knight and folks of that sort. We also like neo-progressive bluegrass, people like Mountain Heart. And we live deep in Appalachia, so we still get exposed to indigenous mountain music, you know, porch music where people just get together on a Friday night and three or four of them will pull out their instruments, start playing and singing. Some of it not the most beautiful, but it's soulful. And then our local tavern every Friday night, just random people show up and play and including one of our neighbors once in a while, who not only is he the biggest and best farmer in the county, but he's also an astounding fiddle player. And when he shows up, it's a big deal, and we all have a good time.
1: Oh, great. Well, then I won't have to explain some of what I call uh, unpopular or peasant music, because to me, that's the stuff that makes America great. Is the um, instinctive homemade art of the American people? I, I'm, I'm a big fan of open mics and small gigs and homemade stuff, and I, I, I'm never been fascinated with the music industry. In fact, I'm, I live about as far from L.A. and Nashville as you as is possible to be in this United Snakes here, and I've um, I've never been tempted to uh, participate in the sort of slimy. Um, high-pressure world of the, the music industry as it has grown to be.
0: Cool. So I think that's probably enough of an intro. Let's turn to the book now. I think it's fair to say the central idea in the book is that the concept of the troubadour is a useful category for a distinct class of musicians. I know you go into the voluminous history of the concept, etc., but in short, what is the troubadour to you in terms of a useful category?
1: Well, first, I'll sort of defend the word. There really isn't a word in English for what I'm trying to talk about. And it's kind of the thing that started my whole book. All my life, people have been asking me, what kind of music do you play? Fundamentally, what I do is the kind of music that a person can do. And what I call a troubadour is a very old word that goes back 800 years or so. And until we get a better one, I, ch- I chose to use it. And chapter four of my book is all, is all about that, that word and how I don't think that the dictionaries have adapted to the times. But the troubadour is essentially a self-accompanied singer. It has struck me my entire life to be very odd that it's probably the most common form of music. We all know Untold numbers of people who can play a song while accompanying themselves on their guitar or their accordion or their auto harp or their piano. And yet it's never, it's not recognized as a type of music. It doesn't exist. There's no Grammy category. It's not a genre. You can't go to a music school. In fact, that's one of the most glaring things that I think if people who are trying to get their teeth into what we're talking about, it's, it's really unusual that places like Juilliard and Peabody Conservatory and the supposed higher echelons of music absolutely don't allow anyone to play and sing at the same time. You have to choose to be either a piano major or a voice major. You can get a degree in accompaniment, but that only means that you play piano while other people <laughs> sing. And they you know they have a word for accompanist but there's no word for self accompanist or auto accompanist and my god that's what everyone does and people have been doing this since caves there's an elitism thing going on here that we we can or we can talk about if you like just the idea that there's this higher music versus lower music thing and troubadour is not part of higher music when i was quitting school in the 70s to, to play street music, I remembered looking into whether or not there is some way I could study the music that really interested me in a in a higher education setting, and the answer was no. Um, and now, 50 years later, it really hasn't changed very much. And it's to me, it's kind of remarkable that during the last 75 years, this singer-songwriter, self-accompanied guitar player has gone... Um, basically taken over the whole music business and the orchestras and the crooners and the ink spots, uh, harmony groups that used to dominate the pop charts. More and more now, we're seeing um, the presence of individual artists. People go to see Garth Brooks. They don't go to see the Garth Brooks quintet sing five-part harmonies of uh, whatever their hits were. And uh, to me, it's really that, that's a, a big part of my book is, is, is complaining about how we've been kind of left out as a, um, a recognized form, even though we're everywhere. And if you want to let me complain a little bit, we'll go there. But I, I think everybody understands perfectly well what this type of musician is, but I'll bet most of them haven't really thought about how we got to this point and where we might be going in the future.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about all those things. So that's, that's good. And one thing I might push back just a little bit, I'd love to get your response on. And the closest thing I found to an early definition in the book, You Say Things, is when an individual person sings a song passionately and distinctly while accompanying themselves skillfully on a musical instrument without assistance from machines or other humans. And I'm curious, maybe I'm not entirely sold on the distinction of one unassisted human. For instance... My daughter and I went and caught you at Wolf Trap many years ago, and it was really a great show, and you did a lot of individual numbers, but I got to say, the show really picked up some energy when Brian Silber stepped up on the stage, and you guys played three or four songs together, and that was really powerful.
1: Well, I, I don't mean to put down, I play music with people and always have. I mean, you're absolutely right. And and yes, it's very entertaining that way. But it's it's my belief that the solo art form and what it amounts to, I concluded that it involves the interplay of words, rhythm, and music. And purely instrumental music is a little different animal than when there's language involved. And there's something about self-accompanied rhythmic rhyming words that has become the center of most Western music. And that's a very, very interesting part of the troubadour story is the fact that rhyme itself is really a pretty new idea. Um, rhyme, as far as I can tell, you can't really measure these things, but I, I worked as hard as anyone could to try to get a sense. But I, it's possible that the reason rhyming is so ubiquitous in songs and especially songs it goes back to the Quran. And that rhyming, or what we call end rhyme, was not really a part of European poetry and songs. And the idea that when a person picks up a musical instrument now and wants to create a song or, or perform a song, it very often involves rhythm and rhyming and words that connect to that person's emotions. And that's actually a new idea, too, the idea of the romantic uh, thing or the lyric poetry and those things, as far as people can tell, you know Beowulf and you know old Norse things and, and uh, Odysseus and the the ancient Greek stuff. Most of the language and the poetry was narrative, and it told stories and the exploits of warriors and kings and travelers. And this idea of singing about how heartbroken you are um, may have may have been an Islamic thing that came over through spain and worked its way into europe and then got when it came over to the united states the idea that it this troubadour stuff got wildly energized by the african-american musical energy to me that stuff created in the american songwriter something very very new and very big i don't know if i'm making sense but i believe that the solo art form might be the closest that a listener or a musician can get to the fundamental, to the muses, to where a person and music interact within a person who's building the scaffolding of the rhythm and generating the the chordal accompaniment and singing and phrasing and syncopating and punctuating and all those different dimensions in the music. To me, that is so hypnotic. And when I hear a good solo performer go deep, deep, deep into themselves – and do a performance like that—it moves me like nothing else. And that's something just that just isn't talked about. And of course, when two people sing together, it's awesome. You're right. And Brian Silver is a marvelous fiddle player, and we played music together for many, many years. And my wife is a marvelous fiddle player, and we we did our first gig in 16 months, <laughs> two days ago, and it was it was marvelous. And we we played solo and we played together, and neither was better, but. You know, I'm not trying to, to, I'm too scared to define anything. And I think I quoted uh, Robert Persig there a few times, um, the Zen and motorcycle maintenance guy, who I kicked myself. I had no idea that he's, he lived in the next town over from me here in Maine for 40 years. I, no one ever told me. And now he's. Not, I could have met the guy. He did a really uh, interesting discussion in his book about the word quality,
0: if you remember. I'll do a call out there to Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's in my top 11 all-time best books.
1: Oh, no kidding. Yeah, well, the, the idea that that concepts are useful, even when you can't rigorously define them, but we sort of all know what they mean, and I'm just kind of assuming that people out there listening might be able to picture the difference between Bob Dylan on stage there by himself with his guitar or Bob Dylan with a band on stage and that's a pretty stark way to look at it. And uh, in fact, Dylan would be a really good person to talk about because he's one of the, what I think, one of the more primary troubadours of our time and and, and his receiving the um, Nobel prize there. I, I I took that to, that's kind of what started my whole book actually was um, I wrote a blog piece about how I, f- I felt like that was The beginning of the end of 500 years of uh, prejudice against troubadours, and there was finally some serious large-scale healing going on, and people were really realizing the power of someone like
0: him. Of course, it's also true, you know, Dylan famously became an apostate to the acoustic tradition when he, where was it, at one of the famous Newport music festivals or something? Came out with the electric, backed by a band, and mostly didn't look back.
1: He's done, since then, he's done at least two or three albums of uh, completely solo, self-accompanied, absolute pure troubadour music. I wish I knew him, so it would have been fun to get his take on a lot of this, but he's a great example for people to picture. And I don't know if any of you, John Prine was a big um, influence on me in my early days, and I I saw him a number of times when it was just him on stage with his guitar, and... I found it just unbelievably hypnotic and interesting. And when I saw him years later with his rather loud band, when drowning out all his words, I wasn't um, as happy.
0: Yeah, funny you should mention that. John Prine is the musician that my wife and I have seen the most times, like 10 probably. In fact, on our second date, and this would have been like 1976 or 76 probably, we saw John Prime sitting on a stool at Carter Barron, and it was fucking awesome. And as you say, he's at his best in a church in Cambridge, Mass, where we saw him one time. You know, seen him lots of different places. But one time I saw him with this obnoxious band. This would have been about 1979, probably in Richmond, Kentucky. And he looked like he was coked up and probably half drunk. And as you say, you know, John Prime and an obnoxious band behind him was, was not a good fit at all. Fortunately, he seemed to have kicked that habit in his old age. We saw him again at the Lensic in Santa Fe, New Mexico, not too long ago after he kind of tore himself up with a bunch of jaw surgery and what have you. But his, his show was still pretty damn good. You know, just John Prine sitting on a stool.
1: Well, yeah, it's that personal energy of his words and his voice. And that's that's the art form that I really am trying to focus on here. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to have seen a quite a number of the really uh, legendary uh, troubadours of our time uh, and gotten to know a lot of them. And, and, you know, if you've seen Ramblin' Jack Elliott by himself and if you've seen uh, Tom Rush and um, Annie DeFranco, and there's some John Gorka, there's some really powerful people out there. Willie Porter is one of the very best, although he plays with the band also. And that's one of the things that if we were a music business, discussion here we could talk about that is why um you can't really there's never been a hit song that i can find since 1928 that consisted of a person playing a solo unaccompanied troubadour performance and so when john prine got signed to a record deal they made a record with a big with a band and he was expected to get commercial airplay and it's possible that the Radio formatting and the record company executives have been as responsible as anyone for keeping the public from hearing very much unaccompanied solo acoustic music. Dylan's first three albums were completely unaccompanied, and a lot of people think that was some of his very best work. But then he started using the the drums and the electric instruments there pretty heavily, as, as you pointed out.
0: Now, there's one, I would call him pure troubadour, love to get your sense, that, you know, had a platinum album, which was Bruce Springsteen with his Nebraska album. And that was right at the height of his career between the river and the true monster born in the USA. I did some research yesterday on the history of that album, and it seems that he recorded these on a four track recorder in his basement or in his backyard or something and had intended them as demos for his band. And some of them actually did go on to be used in Born in the USA, but he decided that there was a sufficient body of essentially just him playing on his guitar and his harmonica to release it as an album, and it went platinum.
1: Although one of the things I did in my book was um, I took advantage of the um, information revolution that basically was the thing that kind of killed my career when people stopped buying music recordings (laughs) I took quite a hit, but that same technology allows you to uh, get access to information as we all understand now. But I studied the Nebraska album very closely. And I, I've tried to put together a list in my book of the very high profile troubadour performances. And I've made a Spotify playlist of all the ones I can find. And there's, none of them have been number one hits some of them came really close like the adele song someone like you was actually her singing while miles robertson played the piano and then she sang harmony with herself on the final verse and when elvis did love me tender back in 1956 he wasn't playing the acoustic guitar behind himself that was Vito mumolo and the ken darby trio behind him and actually Springsteen did not do any tracks on Nebraska where he played and sang at the same time. Ah, he did the rhythm guitar first and then he overdubbed the harmonica and the he multi-tracked but didn't actually do them simultaneously. So um I didn't consider that although I gave the gray area performance that I gave the nod to was the uh, when Christina mcvee sang a songbird on the Fleetwood Mac's Rumors album. She's played the piano and sang at the same time, and that's a really stunning example of what I'm talking about. And everybody agrees that that song is is just hypnotic. Although Lindsey Buckingham was sitting six feet away playing a really, really, really quiet rhythm guitar behind her to cheer her on or something, so technically she didn't do it all by herself. But I think I found 11 songs in the, out of, maybe it's 12, out of 1,108 tracks on the 87, I think the number is, of what they call diamond-selling multi-platinum albums that have sold 10 million or more copies. There's only been a tiny handful of songs there that, that have permeated American musical culture that really were a person just playing a song. And w- one of those was Bob Marley singing Redemption Song that was a demo and it wasn't released during his lifetime and they put it on the Greatest Hits album and then it became one of the best-selling records in history. And so people were exposed to that track. But you guys, this is going to be tough because that's a very very good observation about Nebraska. I watched his new Broadway show, Springsteen, back to him appeared to be a magnificent troubadour performance although uh, um, he used a teleprompter for the whole thing and was kind of reading everything and it wasn't as living breathing uh, spontaneous as we wanted it to be although when he sang the songs they certainly were but the the poetry and the lovely speeches he gave were not um, memorized and that's worth seeing if you want to if you want to see something that's almost a troubadour and I wish I could uh, call up Bruce and cheer him on. He's a mighty troubadour, but he, he's and he's not afraid to go on stage with just his guitar. and And I, I talk about him a lot in the book, but none of his hit songs ever were just um, other than the, you know, like you said, Nebraska. And I, and again, I might be nitpicking about whether or not you overdub the vocal uh, on top of the the rhythm guitar, but you know. I'm, since I, I wrote the book and I, I, I published it, I'm, I'm allowed to draw lines where I want to draw lines. And you people out there can uh, decide that that's nonsense. And when Paul McCartney sang Blackbird in 1968, I believe he fingerpicked the guitar and sang that thing. And he should have left it just like it was, but he overdubbed uh, another vocal and some some birds And uh, when John Lennon did, uh, I think it was Julia, that was the closest he ever came to doing a purely solo performance.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. You pointed out that in one of my favorite John Lennon numbers, working class hero, even though it more or less sounds like a troubadour presentation, it actually isn't.
2: Yeah, there's
1: something that's made musicians feel sheepish about playing solo. And and what one of the things I'm trying to do is cheer people on. It can be very moving. And uh, the ones that do it often do it because they just can't afford to tour with a band. So you get to see them when people are at the peak of their career, they often have a band with them. And then as they're dwindling more, they tend to perform all by themselves. And sometimes that's the very best stuff. Dan Fogelberg did some really phenomenal things before he died where he was just out there by himself. I think that's the only place you can hear any John Denver all by himself is on some live things that came out after his death. And I saw him when I was a teenager and was he was a mighty mighty troubadour who then became a uh, kind of a schlocky pop artist. And I was never a big fan of his uh, the string sections. And I rag on his producers quite a bit for, for burying him when uh, he was a pretty darn good guitar player and a good singer and a pretty good harmonica player.
0: Yeah, that was one of the things I learned out of the book, that John was actually a real, you know, solid, rootsy musician, but he was captured by his producers, and it became, you know, just classic pop music with a slight country flavor to it. You know, talk about these production values. You know, one of our favorite musicians here at the Rudd Household – is Merle Haggard, particularly the late Merle. But if you listen to some of his stuff from the 70s, oh my God, is it horrible, right? They try to turn Merle Haggard into sort of a country crooner with heavy violins and all this sort of shit. God damn it, why would someone do that?
1: Yeah, I have no answers. It would have to be somebody higher up in the music business who was in the back, you know, the the smoky room discussions of trying to figure out what to do with these musicians. And I mentioned in the book, there's an interesting album that didn't come out till 1990 that was Hank Williams. I think it was called Alone with a Guitar or something. And Hank Williams first showed up in Nashville and they called them Demos. So there's versions of a lot of his songs that are just him playing guitar and singing without any band that never saw the light of day for 50 years that were just sitting in a vault somewhere that weren't considered to be worth releasing or worth listening to. And uh, if you like uh, modern country music, I just discovered um, that I added to my list of great solo troubadour albums. In fact, I should probably rattle off some of the ones on that list. But I just discovered that Travis Tritt did a truly impressive record about five years ago where he was all by himself. I think it's called A Man and His Guitar
0: We'll have to check that out. I always liked Travis tread even in his commercial country phase. He was a little bit more rootsy and gutsy than most.
1: He was astoundingly good on rhythm and lead guitar. I never had any idea that he was that good. There aren't very many albums that are just the, where the whole album is just one person doing the whole thing. One of the other really great ones that I, re- I recommend people go find is um, called "Soul of a City Boy" by Jesse Colin Young. And he made it in one afternoon in 1960 with just his guitar. It's really powerful. It preceded all of his work with, you know, the Youngbloods and Come On People Now, Smile On Your Brother.
0: Sounds like a good one. I'll definitely pick up the Travis Tritt one because he's certainly someone I've always liked. And Seeing him doing it by himself would be great. You know, you mentioned in the book, we'll get into it more later when we talk about the evolution of information in music that you know YouTube has opened up a new frontier and I was plunking around yesterday looking for interesting things on YouTube in the troubadour genre and I came up with Towns van Zant somebody caught him just sitting around in a room with some dudes who were just listening and he played a complete unaccompanied version of Pancho and Lefty that was fucking brilliant and it had 7 million views and I sat back and thought about that I said you know, about seven million views is a shitload more than Towns ever had listened to him live.
1: Funny you should mention him. Yeah, I saw him when I lived in Nashville in the seventies. Uh, he was about the drunkest person I've ever seen
0: play. I game. love Towns. I've never saw him, but I, you know, seen the documentary movie about him. I've read the fair amount about him in people like Guy Clark's memoirs and stuff. And you know, I'm a true Towns fan. But yeah, he was supposedly one crazy motherfucker.
1: But his um his his solo Troubadour album was a live album called Live at the Old Quarter. Yeah, I've got that. 1973, that's just him on stage. That's a real gem. In fact, I found my list here. It's woodpecker.com slash Troubadours. I got to put a link there of Troubadour albums.
0: Yeah, don't worry about it. We'll have it on the episode page at com. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's some Dave Van Rock and Steve, Steve Gillette and Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Paul Jeremiah and Kelly. Kelly Joe Phelps is one of the great um, troubadours of our time also. A magnificent guitar player and singer and uh, songwriter. There's a long list, although all the people that I really follow and that um, just thrill me to my uh, bone marrow there are are all uh, living in the netherworld of the music business along with me. And uh, I don't know why, but it, it could happen. Post Malone started out as a singer-songwriter playing acoustic guitar, and now he's on the top of the pop music world, and I don't think he does much uh, acoustic singer-songwriter stuff.
0: Could it be that part of this is that singer-songwriter, unaccompanied, just doesn't come across that well in recorded music? You talk some about some of the technology. To get a sense for myself, I went and did a compare and contrast of one of my favorite troubadour songs, Richard Schindel doing The Courier. And I pulled it up on YouTube, Unaccompanied. And then I pulled it up on my favorite recording of his, which is a produced album called Sparrow's Point.
1: Oh, I love that album.
0: And I got to say, the version on the Sparrow's Point was way more moving. I listened very carefully to how it was structured. The accompaniment was somewhat disciplined. There were drums, there were violins, there was a second guitar. But the end result was a more moving piece of music than him doing it himself on a YouTube.
1: Well he might not it might not have been a very good performance that you were watching too. I don't think it's necessarily the art form. And he's he's not a virtuoso guitar player. The virtuoso troubadour is is what I'm personally most interested in is when the person can really play the bit be- Jesus out of their instrument, also, and we don't see much of that. Mark Knopfler could have done it, but he ne- he hasn't. Elton John's a really good piano player, but he really doesn't see fit, except in his unplugged uh, TV thing that he did. That was the only time I was ever able to find him uh, playing all by himself. Yeah, there's something that's kept people from doing that, and either they're scared or they're. Uh, it's also my belief, and one of the one of the pillars of my book is that I really think as we're entering deep into the 21st century and possibly approaching the informational singularity, the most valuable people on the might become the ones who are the most human. And yeah, the computers can beat us at chess and checkers. So don't do that. Do something the computers can't do, like, you know, make up songs and i don't think anyone's going to going to be paying money anytime soon to see a japanese robot do a performance at a coffee house and i think humans by themselves playing music is a really higher form of humanity that could be inspiring and people's lives are being degraded by technology in a lot of ways people are feeling like cogs in a wheel like never before and i think art and spontaneity and creativity and emotion and music—these are things that can free us from a lot of that stuff. And uh, I, I'm I'm sort of optimistically predicting that more and more, it's going to be musical individuals who lead us. You know, it's been interesting to watch Lady Gaga, for example, start out as you know being this wildly produced, danceable, whatever, whatever you call her music at the at the beginning when she broke loose. But more and more and more, she's turning into a um, one of those singing piano players. And that stuff she was doing with Bradley Cooper and the, the movie, and when she gets on stage at the Super Bowl and sings, it's pretty powerful stuff. And I think I'm not the only one that feels that. I think we all feel the humanity there.
0: Yeah, I wonder if you knew that Lady Gaga was a math prodigy. No. Yeah, she scored in the top 10,000th of young people in mathematical ability in some screening tests that's done for smart math nerds. So she was literally Harvard math department, PhD level math ability, but decided not to go that road at all.
1: I had no idea. You can look it up. Here's my list of the, of the top, the only songs in the, the diamond 10 million or more copies, the three, five, the 10 songs that I can find. On Abbey Road, the very last track on the very last album the Beatles did was the only track they ever did. that was It was Paul McCartney singing for 23 seconds, doing Her Majesty.
0: Which was kind of a joke item at the end of the album.
1: Yes, it was the first hidden track in rock music, but the only time. And then I mentioned Songbird by Fleetwood Mac, Redemption Song, Bob Marley. Only one song on um, Eric Clapton's Unplugged album, which was his best-selling record, at least $26 million. He did a Robert Johnson song, Walking Blues, by himself with his guitar, but all the other tracks, he had a band or at least one other person playing with him. And one Simon and Garfunkel cut when Kathy's song and one cut from Jewel, two cuts from Jewel's first record were $15 million. One Billy Joel cut, She's Got Away, from his greatest hits record. One Garth Brooks cut from his live album that's, unfindable in the digital world right now called unanswered prayers and then one from Nora Jones from her breakthrough uh, opening album that sold something like 11 million she did a version of Hoagie Carmichael's uh, nearness of you that was just her on the piano singing but that's I don't think that's enough I think it's been greatly underrepresented and maybe maybe you're completely right that and, I, and boy I love to hear electric guitars I love harmonies I love bands don't get me wrong but I just wish we could hear a little more, and it shouldn't we, we shouldn't have to go all the way back to 1928 when Jimmy Rogers sang T for Texas, T for Tennessee, that that was the last time there was a mega selling hit record that was just a, a person playing a song. And uh, I just think it's uh, something people probably haven't thought about, that there really is this important old thing. That um, has great musical power. That's been treated uh, as if it's an afterthought, or something incomplete, or not good enough, or not not saleable, or can't keep the audience's attention. And I, I I take that personally. I think all of us have seen individual performers be fabulous, and I think there's going to be plenty more of them before the human race obliterates itself. <laughs> I think that's a reasonable thesis to have that this kind of music has been overlooked, and, and especially during the period between about 1500 and 1920, there was, a, boy, they would cut your ear off and nail it to a tree there in public if they caught you uh, playing the fiddle in a tavern somewhere in uh, the Great Britain. The persecution and punishment of uh, peasant musicians in the, the past is something I can still feel here in northern New England. When those Puritans came over here and started persecuting whoever they could find as they supposedly fled persecution, that was the days of Cromwell, you know. Oh, yeah. The gut old days, right? They outlawed uh, leaping and archery and, uh, you know, not just dancing and music, but it's almost comedy. the The stuff I was able to dig up in the history part of my book about how much they not only punished, but just the scorn with the things that the haughty, educated white men said about those um, riffraff musicians. It's pretty shocking.
0: Yeah, well, that was really quite interesting. I had no idea. We'll get to that a little bit in the history section. All right, so let's wrap up the section on establishing the concept of the troubadour with this exit quote. Aren't we glad that Van Gogh didn't get a friend to add something to all of his paintings? When I hear a great troubadour recording covered up by studio overdubs, I feel the same way. I think that sums up Harv's view on the inherent goodness of the single troubadour, as good as anything I could find in the book. Good call. Yeah. So now we're going to move on to the next section, which you rant about several times in various places. I decide we just pull it together in one place and talk about issues around music education. And you have lots of views about how music education is not in sync at all with the Troubadour approach to music.
1: Boy, you can carve that in stone. When I was young, and uh, not much has changed, as far as I can tell, whatever institutional music is going on in, in the public schools and the higher education system just doesn't even address the issue of people playing songs by themselves. The, the school band and the choir are just completely dominant and always have been. And I've got a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old kid right now, and they've been in the school band program. I'm not just speaking uh, from the outside. And I've sat in the auditoriums there with all the other parents listening to all the kids in the school singing in the choir and playing in the band together. And uh, it's just, you know, it's not the kind of music that I normally go to see. And I get a feeling there's a lot of elephants in that room of all the parents thinking what the hell is this you know why can't we hear some willie nelson or sing something we 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 know and like and somehow they've managed to um, still build it all around sight reading of music which uh, i'm one of the few people who will arm wrestle anyone on the validity of putting that much emphasis on that it means nothing to troubadours You do not read the words and and the guitar part at the same time. That's not a part of our world at all. And if you were removed, in fact, it's not part of anything. If you went to a music festival that wasn't orchestras, I mean, if it was anything other than classical or church music, there's only a few places where they have music stands in front of them and they're reading their little parts. But if you went to a Zydeco festival or a country thing or a bluegrass festival, there wouldn't be a single person anywhere um, other than maybe a bass player who was sitting in and had never played with the band before, was reading a chart um, for some of the songs he didn't know. But those would just be chord symbols, just letters, you know, just a G and an A or B7 or something that's not actual note reading. And I, I just have met people all my life who have been thrown under the bus and made to feel as if they're not musical because they don't sight read. And it's my belief that sight reading is a highly specialized kind of a skill and not something that we should expect everyone to do.
0: And you did actually a remarkably eloquent job in the book describing how it would be essentially impossible for somebody doing the troubadour Art form of very intricate guitar work and singing to try to extract that from staff and clef style musical notation.
1: When I went to second or third grade for one of my kids, I was just slack to see a music teacher who'd been teaching for almost 40 years, sitting at the piano, leading a bunch of second graders in singing, I've Been Working on the Railroad, and was not only reading the music to the piano part, but had to have someone turning the pages for them. And I just thought, wow, you know, there's a lot of people that could jam out on that song without much trouble, without without having to search around for their sheet music. And I just realized that there was just a whole different uh, mindset at work there. And I certainly don't see, um, children today flocking to do that kind of the music they're teaching them in schools and the ones that do become musicians do it in secret and uh, do it at night with their um, guitars and their synthesizers or whatever we've all been doing in the uh, peasant music world. So essentially we all do it the way blind people have always done it. You just uh, you don't need to look at anything um, to, to deliver your music And you certainly can't fault Doc Watson and Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder for being somehow musically deficient. You know, they couldn't uh, enroll in Juilliard as uh, music students, (laughs) but thank God they didn't.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I got to say, my own experience with music was on the other side. I played in the junior high school orchestra, and it turned out I did have a facility for sight reading. I still recall the very first piece we played on the violin, which was the real masterpiece, Three Blind Mice. <laughs> and it immediately clicked in my head at that point how the notes on the page converted to the motions and the sounds. And I ended up being a not-too-terrible violinist. I think I was second-seat, first violin in the ninth-grade orchestra. Couldn't beat out Skip Lusby. He was better than I was, but I was better than everybody else.
1: I've heard from him a few times recently. He's out in San Diego. He's a dentist.
0: Well, that makes sense. But anyway, I found it interesting and understandable and doable. Though on the other hand, probably if I tried again, I could probably read music. But you make the point that maybe that's a specialized skill. That seemed to me it was if you started from the very beginning with three blind mites, we even did it pixicato, ding ding ding.
1: Yeah, but there's two things different there. Only certain people have that. It's called buffered memory, and you might you might be one of the ones with that gift to do what it takes to translate that. But th- The other point is that I'm talking about rhythmic and chordal accompaniments and things that are not just one note. Yeah, it's no big deal to sight read three blind mice, but sight reading classical gas or or Richard Thompson's Vincent Black Lightning um, or something, that's not sight reading stuff. And you don't learn it that way. They don't perform it that way. It has no part. The printed page is only tangentially involved in the, the world of 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 troubadour music barely at all, and I think that has deep roots and it but it's it's a stigma and and it 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 rankles me and and in fact as I'm learning about critical race theory now i'm where they're talking about how some people believe that racism is so entrenched in our system you don't even know how to begin to change things and that's kind of how i feel about the teaching of music i wouldn't even have the faintest idea how to go to the uh, school system in my town and and explain to them how to get people playing music that would have more of a place in our society that how do you actually do that and you know they've got a working system that's been going on since martin luther and it's just going to i feel like it's just going to go on forever
0: and as I said, I was totally convinced by your description of all that goes into the playing of, you know, chordal rhythmic music with all the bends and changes and singing. And the fact that in the singing, you typically don't hit exactly on the notes. You're either before the notes or after the notes intentionally and for artistic purpose. And I was as I read that, I go, fuck, I could never do that. I mean, that's like way not the kind of thing I could even imagine being able to do in comparison. Even playing, you know, I got to be able to play pretty fancy Mozart and shit like that. That was much simpler in some sense than the way you described your art form.
1: Yeah, you were you were playing stuff that was designed to be sight-read in, a, in that kind of a situation where it was designed to be simple enough for a person to, and then put together in an ensemble to make something that sounded good. And that's one of the things that bugs me now in guitar education is they're doing that with the guitar orchestra and they're giving 25 kids a guitar and having them each do just one note at a time and play these simplistic things and it makes a big sound, but it's, that's not what guitar players actually do. It's, it's phony.
0: You know, maybe the problem is it's not very scalable, right? At least not in the teacher in front of a classroom, you know, a band, you know, high school band, you can have 80 kids in a high school band and one teacher.
1: Yeah. That's why it's the way it is, but there's just no reasonable way to to deal with one teacher is going to, going to teach guitar you couldn't even tune the and <laughs> even tuning two guitars let alone a whole classroom full of them and i've i've done that a few times and it no i don't have answers yet but i just i'd like to point out that i really think our musical education system needs some serious uberizing and i don't know i'd love to to cheer people on or 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 advise them or cheer do something to participate and that's one of the things i hope to do in the future is maybe help Create some a little bit more of something resembling a curriculum, although, as you pointed out, I think YouTube's doing it for us. That's the old way of learning: is you sit next to Grandpa and watch him play the banjo, and now you just get a video of Grandpa playing the banjo, and you and he you can slow it down and back it up and watch it ten times in a row. And I, I see the people's music exploding right now, and. Uh, I have no fears right now that um, somehow good music is not going to get passed on to younger people. I think it's a very healthy environment, except for the institutional stuff. They make kids feel like they're not musical, or they make them do things. My son, I had to actually go to my elementary school and look the principal in the eye. My son was singing Three Little Birds by Bob Marley, and he was singing... uh, inch by inch, row by row. I taught him to play rhythm guitar when he was seven and he was a beautiful singer. He came home and he said he refused to go to school on music day. He said, those are the stupidest songs. I will not sing whatever it is. I am a piece of broccoli. or um, And I had to go in and say, I'm sorry, you know, you probably had parents come in and say, you know, we're religious people and we're not going to allow our son to go and be taught about evolution or... Or we're, you know, we're gun people and we're not going to take you to the mat about some gun issue. <laughs> I had to take him to the mat and say, I'm sorry, but my son is a very good musician. And we had to bring him in and he performed for the school and and played a Beatles song. And he played a and, and they said, oh, OK, you win that one. So I homeschooled him at one day a week during music class. I drive to the school and pick him up, bring him home. So he didn't have to participate in what he felt was just painful and demeaning, Um, music class. You know, that was, uh, he's 13 now, so that would have been six years ago before I started my book. But that was one of the things that got me worked up and uh, realizing that maybe I should do some ranting.
0: Interesting. I'll give you one example of perhaps a theme that's popped up in a place that you might find unexpectedly. That's in our little city of Stanton, Virginia, where I am today. We have a condo over here that when we want big city life, we come over to the metropolis 25,000. We're also the home of the Heifetz Institute, which is a summer program for very, very advanced young classical players of strings, mostly violins, but also some cello and bass, et cetera. And they're kind of interesting in that Danny Heifetz, who's the founder of it, what he teaches is not technical skills, but performance skills. And during the summer, they have a concert every single night, seven nights a week. It's a, like four bucks. You get some amazing music. And one of the things that they mandate is all music played at the Heifetz Institute is by heart, no sheet music. It could be a soloist up there sawing away with their fiddle, or it could be a trio or small ensemble. And all of them, it's absolutely mandated before they can perform. They've got to be able to do it by heart. And the difference that makes.
1: You can notice that even as an information guy. That's great. That's great.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. We have another music festival here in the Summer Stand Music Festival, which is very good, professional, but they all play from sheet music. And I can tell the difference, right? I can tell the difference between these young kids playing by heart and with soul and from professional musicians, I mean, they're damn good, don't get me wrong, but playing from sheet music. Yep. Quite interesting. Two other things before we move on to our next session, and I think perhaps our most interesting one, at least the one that you and I will have the most shared overlap of perspective on. It's two things. One, you disrespected Peter V. S. Lobos in the book, said no one would ever listen to that fucker twice. He's right on our Pandora playlist. That I checked the other day when I saw that in the book. As he's at number eight, which means that we listen to him a fair amount.
1: I purposely played him for a bunch of people during that era, and everyone told me to turn it off. He wrote some guitar pieces that are um, have become standard, so they don't have to play Fernando Sor pieces from 1700. So now they can play them from nineteen fifty. Instead, they can be 70 years out of date instead of 370. But I think it's really weird that it's mandatory to play Villa Lobos pieces to become a guitar major at a major music school in New York State. I think it's um, Eastman is where they require that. I think that's bogus. I think they should be able to play a Leo Kotke piece if they wanted to, or a Doc Watson tune or a Blind Blake, for God's sake. There's so much great guitar music and why they've why they've singled out Viola Lobos. And I'm sorry that you like. <laughs> <laughs> I like a lot of South American guitar music, although I do greatly prefer the steel string guitar. And it would be fun somewhere in my life to have a lengthy discussion about why there's two kinds of guitar. It's kind of like I was trying to think of an analogy between the nylon or what some of us call plastic string guitars versus um, the steel string it's sort of like softball versus baseball, or or uh, um, clay court tennis, and
0: oh, here's a sharper one. You can say a dildo versus the real thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean,
1: no, I I love. I, I listen to a lot of classical guitar. I always have. I, I have a big collection of records. And but the, the boy that just doesn't get me in the soul when and when someone when when somebody with a strong hand on a steel string guitar rips a note out of that guitar, that sound of the metal and the wood there gets me. And I'm sorry that the the plastic and the wood does not get me as much. And uh, maybe if someone played Vila Lobos on a steel string guitar, I'd like it more.
0: Hmm. Anyway, we'll move on. Different strokes for different folks, just to show that people have different tastes. Final thing before we end with the segment sort of on education, something closely related, so you do talk a fair amount about written supporting materials for the troubadour type performer tablature, lyrics sheets, et cetera. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what those things are and how they differ from clefs and staff style notation.
1: The oldest kind of notation for stringed instruments is is a form of that stuff called that we now call tablature or tab. And some of it goes back at even to a, beyond ancient Islam. The oud players would uh, learn from tablature. Some people think it even goes back to the Sumerians. But, um, and the clef and the notes, that stuff is uh, dates back only about a thousand years. And the tablature is really just uh, where the lines on the tablature show you the strings of the instrument. And there's, there's numbers or symbols on there that show you what position on the string. So you would have, if you're playing the seventh fret of the first string, there would be a seven on, on that uh, line. The tablature is something that people are using heavily now, especially because it worked well as ASCII um, notation in the early days of email and internet. You could email someone guitar tablature in courier font and they could, they could see the guitar part without you having to send pictures. And the huge advantage of tablature is that it's independent of what tuning you're in. And that's one of my biggest um, complaints about the reliance on written music is that standard notation with the clefs and staffs and all that only, only works in one tuning. And so all classical guitarists play in the same tuning. And right now that's pretty small percentage of, popular guitar players use standard tuning. I mean, it's, there's uh, probably not since the 1400s has there been uh, so much diversity in the way people tune their instruments.
0: Explain what these tunings are, what they mean, and how the standard tuning is actually somewhat peculiar.
1: Standard tuning just was something, you know, it's a, it's a, an arbitrary agreement everybody makes i'll tune the strings to e-a-d-g-b-e and so will you and then when i do my fingerings that of this song it comes out the same as when you do it but if you tune the strings to different notes you can still produce the same result it's just the notes land in different places the geometry of the fingerboard is different number one and then you also have um different resonances as it were and big big part of peasant guitar music actually involves the, the uh, droning strings and uh, that's not a big part of written music and classical guitar that the rhythmic drone stuff that's at the heart of banjo music and dulcimer music and uh, even um, sitar and oud stuff and, and now that i mean celtic and blues and a lot most roots music involves the rhythmic drone and that stuff is where the tunings really matter. That's what the banjo is all about, is is the rhythmic drone. The melody notes are are put over top of a rhythmic framework there that also has these resonances going on. And when you change the tuning, those resonances completely change. And so you you know, you can't play Earl Scruggs' banjo music on the classical guitar and standard guitar tuning it's just the notes aren't lined up the right way the fingers don't you only have four fingers on your left hand to fret and you only have so many to pluck them with and you know maybe some maybe that's what robots could do you could build a machine that could play any piece on in any tuning and do inhuman reaches and it's a big big part of the way people play music these days and so many Popular songs are not in standard guitar tuning, so if you were to try to, if you were a student at a music school trying to learn them, I don't know what the heck you would do because you, this sheet music doesn't exist, and if it did, you couldn't read it other than by cheating and pretending. The I suppose you could write it as, as if you were, and they do that, which to me is bogus. I don't know what the analogy there would be to pretending you're not in a different tuning when you really are.
0: How the hell do you do that? Do you have to have another transform in your brain that goes from what you're seeing to what your fingers are doing? It's got to sort of have an extra step of converting one to the other. That was you were writing that in the book. I couldn't quite visualize it. I go, what the fuck?
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the things that is the the heady things that we fingerstyle guitar people do. Is a lot of us will use multiple tunings. I play a number of stringed instruments in a number of tunings. And I also play around, I'm the, I'm the sort of the pioneer, the headwaters of what's called the partial capo, which is a different way of changing all the resonances and fingerings. Couldn't be any further than playing a Villa Lobos piece from sheet music, the kinds of things that we do in our brains when we're juggling, when you're playing a tune in a tuning. where you maybe you haven't played that song in that tuning before. And it's a, it's a whole different musical brain involved there. And I don't know how to let non-musicians into that world. But it's a really strong argument for why we shouldn't rely too heavily on written notation in music. So,
0: All right. Well, that's a good place to wrap up the section on education and notation. In the interest of time, we're going to skip two of the interesting chapters, one on the history of the Western Troubadour and the roots back to the south of France, romantic poets and all that stuff. I found it interesting.
1: Oh, I thought that was going to be the most boring part for most people.
0: I thought it was interesting how it came up from the Arabs to the Spanish. But anyway, if people are interested in the history thereof, he does a great job of it. And then a quick and dirty, but still informative history of the guitar from its various roots in the Ord, I believe it was, and then to the lute, and then from the lute to various proto-guitars, and then finally the various guitars that came after. Interested in that stuff? A pretty good, concise history of the guitar. I will give you one entry into this history section because you hinted about it earlier. Give us a bit of a quick and dirty on the chapter that's titled Aspersion, Scorn, and Persecution. Oh, if only because it's so good and gory.
1: Yeah, that was um, one of the more startling things for me was to discover that my people, the troubadours, which incidentally is one of the other key points in my book that I should have said in the first five minutes, is that I really believe that the idea of a person with an instrument playing a song as an art form is fundamentally the same all throughout the world and all throughout history, whether it's a guy in Cambodia singing with his chape, or whether it's a Chilean revolutionary singing something, or whether it was a someone in, in Spain 800 years ago. To me, I see that as all the same, like the donut and the coffee cup thing. They're just isomorphic to each other. Just, okay, the person playing music. And that idea is impossible to trace. Because all history involves around printed page, and the printed page music, it's a shadow of what the actual music was. So we re- there's a lot of guessing going on in that history section about where it all came from and why it was so outlawed and vilified so many places. It's anybody's guess. It may have been rooted in the fact that it probably came over from North Africa through the Islamic thing the idea of a a fingerboard with strings on it was not really known in Europe. And that probably almost certainly came from Islamic world. And so the people singing with their ouds and with their fretboards playing their whatever they were doing, you know, these were dark-skinned people that were the wrong religion. So they were immediately off to a bad start with the Westerners. And The other issues of whether or not they were doing carnal things and singing about love and romance and cheating or whatever, who knows whether the subjects of the songs were. Um, This guy, Ted Joya, who's a major, uh, a guy I quote a lot in my book, uh, who's a really great music researcher, historian person. He took that position that he thought it was the the uh, non-Christianity and the carnality of uh, peasant music that caused the church and European society to to reject it so much. I have a theory that I don't bring up till later in the book that it's possible that the solar troubadours were accessing a kind of individual divinity or a personal a shamanism of some sort that was uh, too much like witchcraft for the um, Western Europeans. Something caused the wandering minstrels who were In the early days, they seemed to be welcomed into the courts of the rich and famous, and it was, come in, come in, let me, of your music, let me hear, Um, the old ballads would go. And then starting around in the 1500s, they started uh, arresting them and torturing them and uh, outlawing them and whipping. I had a lot of fun digging up the laws and quoting exactly what (laughs) Was forbidden, and whether or not King Edward I really did burn five hundred bards at the stake there in Wales back in the twelve hundreds, it's heavy metal stuff. And and it's possible that those uh, solo troubadours were smart mouthed comedians, kind of people that were uh, pissing off the rich and powerful and being punished for their insolence and their disobedience more than their actual uh, you know guitars. They were whatever the heck they were playing. It's anybody's guess. And it lingered. They didn't even allow you to stand on a street corner in the United States until 1972, when they finally, the Supreme Court, I was shocked to find out that that was the year when vagrancy laws were struck down. And God knows how many musicians were locked up or put on chain gangs for um, playing music on a street corner somewhere.
0: You were known to do that on occasion, as I recall.
1: Yeah. And as I mentioned in the book, the year I started doing it was the very first year it was legal. And, and I remembered even now, I remembered this weird feeling of like, wow. And that some of the old hobos and street people there were uh, seeing us hippies playing bluegrass on the streets and going, wow, you guys are going to get in trouble, you know, because the cops had been hassling anybody that was out on a street corner all throughout the history of cops And we feel it here in uh, Puritan, New England. I swear, when we we sing a song in church, it's just like, wait a second, you know, that ain't the way Martin Luther, well, that's not the way Luther done it, they've used it in Maine. But, you know, they they still like their pipe organs and their choirs and their hymn books up here in the churches. And we, uh, our troubadour music doesn't feel wicked welcome with the fiddler and the troubadour here. So we always feel like we're ruffians
0: devil's children, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of musicians might confess that they felt that way when they told their parents, they wanted to be a songwriter and not a, not a professor.
0: Yeah. What not I imagine? Your dad was none too pleased with that disclosure. And hey, yep. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> well, let's move on to our next section, which like I said is a was of great interest of mine, because it happens to overlap with some of my own thoughts and even some of my own work. And that is another major theme in the book, is how technical revolutions drive musical evolution. And you give you know, a couple of examples, one that you talk about relatively briefly, even though it was important to the commercialization of, of music in the United States, which was the combination of the piano plus the printing press had a first mass market in sheet music, which was... Something we don't think about too much, sheet music. God damn, they still make that, I guess they do, but it's certainly not a big industry today, though well, sure it still exists. Though I think my wife mostly just downloads her sheet music from the internet and prints it out, as I recall, or does it on her iPad when she plays the piano? But the next ones is where it gets really interesting. And you go into some great detail on how a revolution occurred in peasant music in particular in the 1920s and early 30s, with the dual combination of of, finally, reasonably high-fidelity mass market recordings and broadcast radio. So tell us about how those two technologies did something important and powerful to the music evolution of America that we're still feeling today.
1: Boy, I couldn't have said it any better than that. It's my firm belief that there was a a real explosion, like, like a meteor fell to Earth or something. And it took them a little while. The um, first cylinder recordings were the 1890s, but it just didn't occur to anybody to point one of those horns at the peasant musicians for almost 40 years. And it was, it was by accident. And those stories are pretty famous of when the fiddle and John Carson made the for his first record. And they um, just thought it was. The record company guy wouldn't even put a number on it and called it perfect, awful but they he did it as a favor for a friend and the thing sold out in 24 hours and they, oh my god people want to hear this crap and the edison cylinders got replaced by the flat 78 edison lost that format war and um, and it was fortunate because you could mass produce the flat ones better than you could the the cylinders and so all of a sudden, huge numbers of these recordings were able to be made rather easily and they spread around. And it is still reverberating today, the effect of what happened. They were only trying, as far as I can tell, people were just trying to make a little money. It was a quick and dirty way you stick a microphone in front of somebody and make a few records and you can print money. And the reason that we have so many of those old records was just that people wanted to buy them because they wanted to hear them in their house. And it was the newfangled, hot, it was like the iPod. And you get a Victrola and people would listen to records with their neighbors. And that came at the same time that radio showed up. And it it took them quite a while to learn how to play records on the radio. So for the early part of radio, all the, the musicians were all live. So, all performing musicians were associated with a radio station and they were broadcasting all over the country, mostly locally. But the musical ideas exploded and the, the rhythms and the tones and the, suddenly these things that can't be written in sheet music. And what does a Cajun waltz sound like? Well, you can't write that down. You can't hand somebody and say, play this, you know, tell the orchestra this is cajun style you have to know what cajun music sounds like and so those things it coincides exactly with the appearance of those recording technologies is the spread of those ideas and that's what led to to blues and jazz and all the exciting music that america produced that ended up kind of overwhelming the you know the world rock and roll was a pretty global thing the roots of that you know even they made race records where they were just trying to sell records to black people because black people couldn't go to the theater and they didn't have radio stations playing black records until the 1940s and they found out that black people especially in rural areas bought something like 10 times more records than white people did so people set up record stores in Jackson Mississippi and they'd sell 5 or 600 records on a saturday afternoon and make sizable amounts of money. And those records have defined, you know, still that's another information story is how they've been digitized. And now you could in your pajamas in the middle of the night with an electronic device, you can hear those things that happened in in some rented hotel room in 1930 in Atlanta somewhere. They nailed some mattresses on the wall and made a record. And some of those people wailed when they sang their songs, you know?
0: Yeah, it's funny. It's preparing for the show based on reading the book. I pulled up the collected works, not very many of them that they are, Robert Johnson, and just played through them all.
1: Yeah, that well, that's about as good an example of solo troubadour music as America has ever produced. It's, it's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it was low fidelity, but man, the intricacy of, and the way he used his voice if I were to rank him, I'd say his voice was maybe even more interesting than his picking, and his picking was pretty damn good. But the two together were quite interesting. And you know, it's up there on Amazon Music, you know, the complete collected work, but it was well worth listening to. I and mean, if you know if you want to get a sense of what Harp's talking about, I'd suggest check Robert Johnson out. You know, of course, Robert Johnson also is uh, deep in American mythology. And you do talk about this in the book that, you know, allegedly he sold his soul at the crossroads somewhere in Mississippi. In fact, he's even a a bit character in one of my favorite movies. Oh, 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 brother. Oh, brother, where art thou? One of my very favorite movies, probably seen it 10 times. They pick up Robert Johnson while he's hitchhiking and drop him off at the crossroads and just kind of move on, etc. But anyway, you know, to get a little bit more formal, get back to kind of information talk, you know, I was thinking about it and putting it in my language. I would say the pre-record and pre-radio epoch. And particularly for that kind of music, which could not be represented in a written form in sheet music, as you described why that's the case, the way it was transmitted from person to person, you called oral, I would call mimesis, is basically by personal copying. You know, people would sit with somebody and, you know, they would show them the moves and they'd reproduce it or or they'd watch somebody play on a porch someplace in Mississippi and then they'd try to do it. When we got to the record and the radio, we could talk about memetic propagation, where the instantiation of the object itself becomes a meme that floats free in the world, disconnected from the people. And obviously, if you think about it from a network diagram, the number of people who could actually watch some famous or not famous, that's the whole point, they weren't famous, some blues dude in rural Mississippi it's going to be small. And so the propagation network's going to be small and sparse, and it's not going to spread very fast or very far. But you take that same brilliant musician, you know, Robert Johnson, and you sell, you know, I think it was or 8,000 records. It wasn't a lot, but for those days, not bad. A whole bunch of people, suddenly got exposed to how Robert Johnson played. And I can recall reading some of the memoirs of some of the later musicians, particularly ones that stand out, were Keith Richards' memoirs and Bruce Springsteen's. And they both talk about how many countless hours they spent playing the same track over and over and over again and trying to master what it was these people on the radio were doing. So in that sense, in this mimetic propagation, you know, the numbers go way up and the network diagram becomes much bigger, much more tangled and becomes much bigger, much faster.
1: Yeah and we're now we're now entering the fourth great revolution in in musical information. The first one was brought on by the printing press in the late 1400s and the second one as you pointed out was brought on by the audio revolution in the 1920s is when the it affected the world of peasant music. People could hear Caruso and Sousa marches and things before that and Al Jolson doing his whatever he did. But then now now with YouTube and the video revolution, not only can you hear the music, but you can see it played. And I think this is one of the things that's really going to help the Troubadour cause. Nobody really wants to watch the Beatles put together their album and painstakingly overdub things for a week straight. But there's more and more and more emphasis on seeing it done live. And I think that's really healthy for music in general. And the pandemic made it even more poignant. I I released my book during the pandemic there because I was afraid I was going to die. I didn't want to leave my family (laughs) an unfinished monstrous book, but seeing all those uh, pop stars who didn't have all their roadies and all their uh, sound techs and they were just sitting on their couch with their guitar, trying to deliver their song. And it was kind of the, it was a great leveling of the playing field. And I think, um, a lot of people, a lot of observers felt that the pop stars kind of showed uh, a whole lot of nothing there. And a lot of some of the strongest music that went down during the the live streaming uh, homemade pandemic stuff were in, indie, uh, lesser known artists were, were rocking, I think, the internet a lot more than the super famous people were. Anybody can see what's going on when there's one camera not moving. And, you know, and that's what I've been doing for the last year. And boy, does that. Uh, you know, you can't scratch your nose without anyone noticing. It's, uh, and, and that put an honesty back in music that hasn't been there since overdubbing was invented. And uh, you're absolutely right to call attention. I, I think just seeing musical information as, as just that, as information, and it spreads the way all information does, and uh, to a certain degree, the way germs and pathogens do. It's hard to know who's learning what from whom, but boy, it happened.
0: And maybe you could give us a brief history of both the blues, which you go into in considerable detail, and maybe a little more briefly on the Hillbilly music and how those things both exploded during that period and went from being regional curiosities to suddenly becoming much more mass phenomena.
1: Yeah, when they when they pointed their recording horns in the 20s at the peasants. That because we were a segregated country, they they rather quickly decided that they would market one group of music to the one race and one group to the other. And now, historically, of course, it would have been better if they hadn't have done that, because there was actually the, a lot of mixing going on back then. Most of the white country musicians um, admitted, quite publicly, that they learned from their black neighbors. Hank Williams learned from Rufus T. Tot Payne there. And, you know, th- th- we even know the names of who, the, who people um, learned to play guitar from. The recordings, I think they greatly made it much easier, for example, for a white person to learn black music because you didn't have to go to the black part of town and go into a speakeasy somewhere and listen to the band. You could just listen to the record in your home. And I think information found its way around by whatever pathways. It's kind of like water going downhill. But people were hearing things that they couldn't possibly have heard in their in their normal lives. And one of the things that I kind of pulled from that study was there was a lot of solo troubadours in the 1920s and 30s on the records. And then all of a sudden it ended. After that, it was only bands and groups and orchestras and whatever. And of the early solo troubadour recordings, by far the most proficient ones were the African Americans and those people like Willie McTell and uh, Lemon Jefferson and Blind Blake in the in Tampa Red, the 1920s, and some of the women too. Geisha Wiley, although she wasn't well known, and uh, Memphis Minnie was was quite a, a, a solid musician. But I think it was partly just because their culture had, they so many things were forbidden to them. And they were able to get their hands on cheap guitars through the Sears catalog and the hardware stores. It was a a lucky coincidence of manufacturing and of um, the postal service and the Sears catalog. There was a whole lot of other factors that allowed the musical instruments themselves to get in the hands of people all over the country. And they made their own music, their own soundtracks to their lives. And the ideas, the guitar got completely revolutionized. And it only took about 50 years. Slavery was officially outlawed in 1863. And even through all the Reconstruction and Jim Crow days, somehow by 1900, basically 50 years, a couple generations, the black people seem to have stopped playing the banjo. And they completely reinvented horns and guitars. And the, the, the contribution of the African-Americans to American music is something that I, I think is pretty well known but uh, in my field of singer songwriters th- where it's mostly white people in my lifetime it was it was really startling for me to realize how much of a debt all of a, all guitar players owe to uneducated illiterate mistreated black people from rural south who were somehow managed to create and keep this music alive to make their lives more tolerable The people that were there recording them weren't, I don't think they were that interested in their live story. And gee, where'd you learn that tuning from? Or
0: They were in it for the money, as you point out, a few times, right? Some dude that ran a general store also had a sideline of scouting musicians because he got paid, right?
1: Yeah, and even Robert Johnson, who is the most hallowed of all that early group of musicians, and and, and rightfully so, just astoundingly talented um, young man. And the guy who was responsible for producing and who was standing there when he recorded every single one of those tracks, Don Law, never said anything. He lived till about 1980-something, and you'd think he might have like, said, yeah, wow, it was really something to be in the room with that guy when he was doing hellhounds on my trail. I, I got chill bumps. I quoted whatever it is he said. They found something recently, that a letter he wrote.
0: He had long fingers or something, right?
1: Yeah, he had beautiful hands. That's It sounded like a child molester's comment or something. But you, you'd think it's like most of us would feel like that would be a bucket list thing of all time to travel in time and be in that hotel room in Dallas watching Robert Johnson sing preaching blues, and and go, okay, it's a take.
0: Yeah, that would be fucking outrageous, wouldn't it?
1: Oh yeah, and this guy couldn't say anything. It almost feels to me like it's only now that the stuff is being digitized. And even that has a complex, I just learned there's legal reasons why they've put a lot of those early recordings up on the uh, Spotify and the digital uh, MP3 stuff. And it wasn't all just pure altruism. It was also money. But there's tens of thousands of old recordings now that, that have been made available to anyone who cares, who's willing to spend a pittance for a subscription, you know, to one of the streaming services, it's like an unbelievable gift to humanity. It's like like building the interstate highways or, or putting an airport in every city. Young people today, if if they had ever put their phones down and actually <laughs> dig into their instruments,
0: get off my lawn, goddammit! It sounds like an old boomer ranting in the neighborhood.
1: The tools that they have available now to learn from the the, the pile of what other humans have done musically it's just overwhelming and, and inspiring. It's such a beautiful thing to uh, pick through that pile of old recordings and uh, hear all the different ways people express themselves. I mean, I listened to, could have been easily five or 10,000. I just couldn't stop. It was like almost like, hi, I'm Harvey Reed, and uh, I have a problem. It was, it was like uh, Musicaholics Anonymous. It'd be 3 in the morning, and I'd just be listening to more and more, oh, my God, listen to this, listen to this. Um, kind of stuff. It's very, very exciting. And any of you that haven't done that, haven't dug through some of the peasant music pile, I urge you to um, give it a try. Or There's some record companies now that are putting together wonderful anthologies of uh, some of that old stuff to help guide young people and uh, newcomers. You don't have to be a record collector freak anymore.
0: Let's also talk a little bit about, you know, how Music is now information and it evolves and it can take somewhat unexpected pathways and unexpected turns. For instance, you point out that very few black musicians now play anything like the blues, right? Uh, That's basically a white boy thing. and, And one can point to the giant impact that the old country blues had on British invasion rock and roll. I mean, the Led Zeppelins, the Beatles, even the Stones. I mean, Jagger and Richards. I think Medda record store because they were both obsessed with buying old blues records, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting stuff.
0: It flows. It's not it's not linked anymore to the person to person, and at the same time, you know, blues also through the other route went into R and B and commercial rock and roll, which you could then say spawned hip hop and some of the more modern black music. So it's so interesting how musical ideas flow and mutate and evolve and you know nobody can put them in a box anymore right not that they ever really could but you know in the age of digital everything and anybody able to learn anything we live in this you know extremely fruitful time of musical intercourse if we might want to call it that
1: it is it's a very it's a very exciting time musically and um, even though there's not much real diversity in in the the big money part of the popular music world there's fewer songs in the top 40 went to the top 30 to the top 20 or whatever i mean the but man is it ever a feast out there for anyone who's um, who's really interested in exploring and the, you're right the influences are flying everywhere and i don't think there's any hope of anything ever doing anything but continuing this kind of process of um, You know, in my own wife, I give an example in something, one of my writings, she grew up in uh, New Hampshire playing Suzuki violin. And, uh, you know, her favorite musicians, she was born in 1968. Her very favorite singers, uh, she points out, one of them is Ralph Stanley, the bluegrass singer, and the other is Billie Holiday. She likes Tina Turner, and she likes Big Mama Thornton, but she loves, you know, Dolores Keene singing Irish ballads. I mean, it's. I think it's really healthy to um, just let go of the idea of genres and let people just like what they like. And I, I see more of that going on. There's more cross pollination of of musical information. It it might almost be bewildering. You should, and I guess that's what genres are good for. It's fun to go see a country band when you know they're not going to do a Duke Ellington tune, and and just let them play. You know, I, in fact, I have a country band. We play hardcore. Uh, George Jones and Tammy Wynette and uh, Merle Haggard stuff with a great pedal steel player. And it's 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 freeing to just do that and not play any sly guitar blues and not do any auto harp stuff. But um, even though, you know, I wouldn't want to time travel backwards and go live in a previous era in spite of all the scary things that are supposedly happening now. That's one of the great, great things about the information revolution is how much fun I've had learning about not just music, but Man, within you hear someone's name you know you look Petey Wheatstraw you see that name and you, within 15 seconds you can have his bio up there. you can find out when he was born, when he died, what is what record company put out, what songs and you can go to Stefan Wirtz's uh, German music freak website and see every single record he ever did with the It's just marvelous how much how much information has been given to us. And uh, I salute all those who have uh, been part of doing that, because I I certainly uh, took advantage of a lot of that technology to research my book.
0: Yeah, and I will say, we're going to wrap it here. I think that's a good place to wrap it about the wonderful future for the mixing and matching of music as information. But man, even though we had a longer than usual episode today, a whole bunch of things we didn't get to, including an amazingly interesting single chapter about one song by... Blind Blake's 1929 recording of police dog blues. Absolutely fascinating. One that was a little less fascinating, I suppose, unless you're a musician, is a whole chapter on the history of Travis Picking. Holy fuck. But you know, if you if you're into that kind of shit, you'll find this extremely interesting and various other really interesting things. I you know looked over Hart's bibliography, I don't know, hundreds of books he's read and this is a really serious work of illumination of what Harve's trying to say. So if this podcast at all tickles your fancy, I'd say pick up the Troubadour Chronicles. I think it's only available on Amazon, right? It
1: is. I chose to go that route. You can get an autographed copy from me if you can track me down at woodpecker.com. But um, it's hard work to put it in an envelope and slower to get to you. But it's something I'm very proud of, and I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled, Jim, that you're interested enough and that you're, you're brave enough to read the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was fun. I mean, we unfortunately didn't get to the one I really wanted to get to, but that's all right. And that was The Troubadour as Shaman.
1: Yeah, that's the deep stuff. That's the deep stuff.
0: Yeah, that's where we probably disagree the most. As listeners of the podcast know, I'm sort of famously skeptical about non-physical phenomena.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no, there never could have been anything such as a musical performance that wasn't purely involving rational things. Oh uh, yeah, that maybe we'll have to uh, have an arm wrestling. I'll have to come down to McDowell there sometime, and i
0: uh, you will know, get a bottle of Oban eighteen out and have at it.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd like to. I'd, I'd, I'm, I'd love to hear. Um, even off, off mic. I'm, I'm dying to. Uh, even though I have a thin skin. I'm hoping to create a little bit of a, you know, a, some blowback and a little discussion here. Cause I, in my book, I do call out a few things that I don't think anyone's ever criticized before. And, uh, I think it's healthy to, um, and I'm very careful to be sort of like a Fox news commentator where it's, these are my opinions and I'm a li- I'm not trying to claim anything as ultimate truth. And, uh, I try to support my, uh, beliefs, the best I can, and and you know the other thing that I somewhere say in the book is that when I realized that I was going to have to make a whole book, I wondered if I had the proper credentials in my field to write a book like this, if indeed it is a field, and if indeed there are credentials, and you know I, I really concluded was I the guy to write the book? And I, I, you know, and I, I continue to believe yes. And someone's welcome to write a better book about the subject if they want, but, um, it's something I've done my whole life and I'm not an outsider looking in and I, I'm not doing it to chase a market or prove a point. It's something that I feel deeply about. And I wanted to talk about, and I'm, I'm really honored that you're interested.
0: Yeah, as I say, it came through. The level of work that you did, the care, the tracking of references and obscure histories, fucking amazing. So people are interested. Shribnard Chronicles, Harvey Reed.
1: And my my single footnote on page 114 that says, um, I worked very hard to tell this story carefully and accurately, though this intermittently scholarly book only has a single self-explanatory footnote. There's a little one there. And then you go to the bottom and it says, This was not a hasty decision, but it's too late to turn back now. (laughs) I like it. In an era of disinformation and polarization about the credibility of information, footnotes have become elitist. A fish fork, French porcelain, or a perfectly folded napkin, a symbol of an academia that has forced students to do things in certain awkward ways according to a set of rules. Anyone who dismisses what is here because of a lack of proper footnotes would probably also dismiss it if it had footnotes, and I would have prostrated myself before the footnote thrown in vain. (laughs) To my mind, at least, this is linked to the ways that musical elitists have shunned my kind of music for centuries and imposed their rules, ideas, and protocols for proper education. My rebellious core wants to present this lone footnote as a competing symbol of populist defiance, to the lingering rejection and disrespect I've felt all my life from a place that claims a higher ground it might not deserve. And it's not just academia. The music industry has its own machinery of commerce and publicity that has rejected or exploited peasant troubadours as much or more than the scholarly world I learned and sold my music improperly, and I'm proud of that, so I will proudly present my contribution of improper scholarship about my world of improper music. It's easier to read and understand information without footnotes, though it takes up a little more paper. So think of the lack of footnotes here as a fist or even a middle finger in the air, perhaps some canine teeth showing, or a ragged battle flag waving.
0: All right. Now, there it is. It's all, it's all summed up. I will say, <laughs> Harv hasn't changed much since he was at least in sixth grade. Was when I you... defiant
1: back then? I thought I was a goody-goody.
0: Oh, fuck no. You were defiant. In fact, we had a little joke. We used to bark. And the reason was, we'd say, because Harv was dogmatic. Ha, ha, ha.
1: I didn't know I was defiant. I thought I, I played by the rules until later in life, and I thought you were the defiant one.
0: Well, I was always a bit on the defiant side, but yeah, you, have, you were hard. I wouldn't say you were so much defiant as hard-headed and sure of your opinions.
1: Really? I didn't know I had opinions back then, but I, 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 I feel like I've got some now, and it's been fun to thrust some of them upon you, and it's really great to hear your voice and know you're doing well these days, and let's, um, let's not wait so long to see each other again.
0: Well... This is a very interesting uh, conversation. And uh, for our, give our folks a taste of what Harvey's Troubadour music sounds like, we're going to play a track called "Auto Wood that he did instead of our usual space music. Hope you enjoy. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jane's Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at ModernSpaceMusic.com.
2: Step up, boys, and listen to my song Sing it to your right, but you might take it wrong It's all about a man who called Otto Wood I can't tell y'all, but I wish I could He stepped in upon shop rainy day Then he had a quarrel with the clerk, they say He pulled out his pistol, shot the fatal blows That is the way the story goes Otto, why didn't you run? Otto's done dead and gone Otto Wood, why didn't you run When the sheriff pulled out that 44 gun I spread the news as fast as I could All about a man that called Otto jury said murder in a second degree. The judge passed sentence to the penitentiary. Yeah, they stuck him in the pen, but it done no good. Couldn't hold a man and called Otto Wood. In a very little while, he slipped outside. Put a gun on the guards to take before a ride. Otto, why didn't you run? Otto's done dead and gone. Otto Wood, why didn't you run when the sheriff pulled out that 44 gun? In time the Carter was way out west In a hold'em game he got shot in the breast. They drug him back and when he got well They locked him down in the dungeon cell Now he was a man that would not run Always carried a 44 gun He loved the ladies, hated the largest Wouldn't take his jaw told, I didn't you? Otto's done dead and gone I don't would why didn't you run when the sheriff pulled out that forty-four gun He rambled out west, he rambled all right. met two sheriffs in a southern town. They said I'd better step to the way we've been expecting you every day. He pulled out his pistol and then he said, "Make a crooked move and you both fall down." Crank up the car and take me out of town. A few minutes later, he was graveyard bound. I told, "Why didn't you run?" Otto's done dead and gone. Otto, would, why didn't you run when the sheriff pulled out that 44 gun? I told, "Why didn't you run?" Otto's done dead and gone. Otto, would, why didn't you run when the sheriff pulled out that 44 gun? Step up, boys, and listen to a song Sing it to you right, but you might take it wrong It's all about a man in Colorado out I can't tell y'all, but I wish I could All about a man in Colorado out I can't tell y'all, but I wish I could